And uh, I say, I sent my slides to Robert, and I see he has decorated them. So I hope that you can read. I, I unfortunately can't read some of those smaller print, but uh, if you've got good eyes, I'll leave that up to you. Well, I hope this has been a good week for you. It's been a special blessing for us. Uh, we have this week on Monday, my brother and his wife, Bobby, came up from San Marcos and they've been here the whole week. And that is a miracle in itself. And uh, we have truly been blessed by their fellowship and enjoyed talking about old times and growing up times and so forth. And it's been a blessing. But we had another special blessing yesterday. Um, I, we have a first cousin who lives over in Cedar Hill. And uh, she is 96 years old. She still lives by, her, by herself in her own house. She still, still lives independently. And uh, we went there and she had the table beautifully decorated and refreshments and cookies and goodies uh, laid out for us to eat. And she served us. 96 years old, and uh, that truly blessed our hearts, and it gave us, motivated us to shoot for that goal one of these days. And so the Lord is so good. Well, we're back today in our series that we're preaching on God's salvation package. And today we're going to be talking about the subject of substitution. And uh, I was thinking this week about this subject and all of these uh, parts of God's salvation package, which regeneration, propitiation, incarnation, redemption, imputation, justification, sanctification, glorification. And I was thinking, we, we compared this God's salvation package to a diamond with all of those beautiful facets. And each facet helped that diamond to reflect the light, the glory, the beauty of that diamond. And uh, so it is with God's salvation package. And uh, if you take one of these out, then it destroys the whole package. For instance, substitution, which is in simply put, it is Jesus Christ taking my place on the cross. You take that out, there is no salvation for me or for anyone else. And so we're going to continue that study and uh, Today we're going to read, and because it's just one short verse, I'm not going to have you to stand, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so, as we said, this is another facet of the 
brilliant jewel of God's salvation, substitution. Every Christian who believes in the inerrant, divinely inspired word of God holds dear this doctrine of substitution. The great preachers down through the history of the church have always preached substitution and held it high. For instance, one time I had to come up to the church, the Busy Bees pest control guy was here and I had to come up here. And uh, while I was waiting for him to complete his duties, I went into my study and uh, there was that cup, uh, copy of Charles Spurgeon's The New Park Street Pulpit. And it's a collection of the first five years of Charles Spurgeon's ministry. He started preaching there in the city of London when he was just 19 years old. And uh, he caught the city by storm. And uh, one of the things that he preached about as I looked through the sermons of that, in that first volume, there were two sermons that Spurgeon preached on the subject of substitution. So even as a young pastor, Spurgeon understood the importance of the doctrine of substitution. And uh, let me digress for a moment. Charles Spurgeon's ministry in 18, began in 1854 and continued until his death in 1895. You and I cannot even imagine the, the impact that Spurgeon had, not just on London and England, but on the world. Every sermon he preached was transcribed and one was published the following week. Not just in England, but around the world. He sold an average of 25,000 copies every week in Great Britain. And his sermons were translated into scores of languages such as French, German, Urdu, and Arabic. My grandma Thornton was born in 1869 in Pleasant Hill, Mississippi. And she died at the age of 92 in 1961. To illustrate the impact of Charles Spurgeon's sermons, let me quote from my grandmother's short autobiography. She said, and I quote, one day while reading the Bible with the children around me, sorry, these pages, in the humble but happy home, the blessed Lord directed me to turn and read Jeremiah 31 and 3, which says, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. And she said, which Reading this verse caused a most delightful and happy feeling that nothing could produce except the touch of God's Holy Spirit. Then something, sometime after this, 
there came a storm of wind and hail, the wind blowing the door open and the house off the blocks. I had quite a collection of clippings from religious papers, among which was Spurgeon's sermons that I had kept ever since I was so happily and gladly saved. I loved to read and ponder over them. I kept them at this time on the organ. The wind piled the other things around the house and some out the door. The organ top also went out with the other things. But the Lord didn't let the wind take those good sermon pages that I loved to read and prize so highly that I felt that the dear Lord had sent them to me. End of quote. Spurgeon was called the Prince of Preachers and loved the doctrine of substitution. If you've read much of sermon, Spurgeon's sermons, you come across it over and over again. In his own words, he said, the whole pith and marrow of the religion of Christianity lies in the doctrine of substitution. Again, in one word, the great fact on which the Christian hope rests in substitution. The vicarious sacrifice of Christ for the sinner is the cardinal fact of the gospel. He said again, there is no doctrine that fires my soul with such delight as that of substitution. Substitution is the very marrow of the whole Bible. It is the soul of salvation. It is the essence of the gospel. We ought to saturate all our sermons with it. For it is the lifeblood of gospel ministry. And finally he said, I am incapable of moving one each away from the old faith. The gospel of substitution. And one thing that I do is preach it. If you put away the doctrine of substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you have disemboweled the gospel and torn from it its very heart. Now, after you hear this sermon, you may say, well, Brother Dale, you should have stuck with Spurgeon. But I hope not. And that reminds me of a quote from Spurgeon. He said, dull preachers make good martyrs. They're so dry they burn well. Well, I hope I don't burn well. But we're going to consider this subject of substitution today. And the first point is the necessity of substitution. Before we can consider the good news of God's substitutionary atonement, we have to consider the bad news, which is sin. Without a proper understanding of sin, substitutionary atonement certainly won't make any sense. Our scripture today highlights the problem of sin and God's remedy. For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
Man is a sinner. That's the bottom line. We have to understand that. And throughout the Bible, this is an assumed and indisputable fact. The record is clear as we read through the Bible and as we look through the pages of history. Man is a sinner. There are consequences to sin. And God has a remedy for sin in our lives. Now, as we look through the Bible, we see the record of Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. How God created man. God performed the miracle of creation, making a whole universe out of nothing. The final act of his creation was to make man in his own image and in his own likeness. Placed in the garden with freedom to enjoy all of God's creation. That was what God intended for all of us. But there was one restriction as God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And so the devil entered the picture. He raised questions about what God had commanded. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He denied the very word of God. You will not surely die. He accused God of evil motives. For God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. The woman listened to Satan and ate the fruit. She gave to Adam, her husband. Sin had entered the world. And so we have the record of the scriptures. Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There are many in the world who downplay and ignore and deny the existence of sin. The atheist Richard Dawkins wrote, the Christian focus is overwhelming on sin, 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 sin. What a nasty little preoccupation to have dominating your life about sin. Yes, sin is a nasty thing. And yes, sin dominates our lives, but not in the way Richard Dawkins implies. Yes, we ignore and we deny sin in our lives to our own peril. But one fact remains. Because God is a holy God, sin must be judged. What will God do? From God's standpoint, the guilt of man is undeniable. 
Since God is a holy and a just God, he must let judgment fall upon sin. That would mean that judgment would come on Adam and Eve and all of their descendants. Because the Bible says, for all have sinned. From our human standpoint, however, God had three choices. Choice number one, he could ignore or pass over man's sin and accept him in spite of the guilt. This would be, unfortunately, denying God's own nature. He is holy. And it would be denying his law, which he has given to us. It would mean letting the guilty go free. Choice number two, God could have condemned all the guilty to hell without mercy. Just said, I'm done with them. Let them go to hell. Let them suffer for eternity. I'm not going to do anything. Ezekiel chapter 18 and 4. Be all souls, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And again in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And so that could have been one of God's choices, send the whole world to hell. But choice number three, he could devise a way to judge sin with justice and yet forgive the sinner who turns in repentance from his sin. And Adam and Eve there in the garden, we know that after their rebellion and after their sin, God killed animals, made covering for their nakedness. And that is a picture of the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, shed his blood that our sins might be covered by his blood. And we stand before God as righteous and holy. In John 21, 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is the great purpose of God's salvation so that our sin can be covered through the Lamb that was slain on the cross. And when God looks at us, he sees cleansed and forgiven and born again children. And so what happened on the cross was God judging the innocent for the guilty. This is God's solution to the problem. He would permit an innocent party to suffer the just judgment which should fall upon the guilty party. Genesis 3.21, as we've mentioned, God killed the innocent animals to make coverings for the nakedness of Adam and Eve. In our text today, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He knew no sin. He was perfect. He was righteous. But on that cross, he was dying in my place for you and for me. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, 
just reading this special passage of Scripture. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we, were, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And what a blessed scripture that is. Because it tells us that Jesus Christ prophetically, 700 years before he was born in that manger in Bethlehem, he died for us. He bore our iniquity. He bore our shame. He bore our punishment. He bore our suffering. Praise the Lord. Point number two, the meaning of substitution. Now, in our scripture that we have used as a text today, it starts out, for... He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, that little word for, the Greek word, it's the Greek word hooper. That's probably not the proper pronunciation. But words have meaning, especially in the word of God. And the word hooper says that this word for, hooper, means in the sense of on behalf of another, for the benefit of another, in the place of another. Jesus died on the cross for the benefit of the whole world. Jesus died on the cross on behalf of me. Jesus died on the cross in place of all sinners. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. For when we were without strength in due time, Christ died, and there's that little word hooper again, Christ died for the benefit on behalf of, in the place of the ungodly in the place of all sinners. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for Hooper, us. He substituted, he took my place on the cross so that I could be saved. Genesis, uh, John chapter 10, verse 15. I lay down my life for Hooper, the sheep, he took my place. First Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And so all of these verses are typical of many verses in the New Testament which teach the doctrine of substitution, that Jesus died on our behalf for our benefit. 
Jesus died for us. He first died for our benefits on our behalf. What was our condition? We were lost. The Bible says, Jesus said, I came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. We were condemned. We would, were going to spend an eternity in hell. But Jesus Christ came to bring about our salvation. He, bring, he came to bring about to salvage us from the ruin of our condition, the lost hope that we had because of the sin of Adam and Eve which had been passed down to all people. So Jesus died in our place. We deserved God's just punishment for our sins. Jesus willingly went to the cross and suffered and died in our place. Now, obviously, there are a lot of people who are enemies of substitution. They don't want to confess that we are sinners, that we are lost. They don't want to confess that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. They, they want to say that Jesus just, was just a good teacher. He came into the world and he set a good example for us. If we live a good life, then we can finally earn our salvation. But there are enemies who say, no, no such thing. Jesus didn't die for our sins on the cross. There are those, these pages keep sticking together, that Jesus dying on the cross was an example of divine child abuse, that God sent his son to the cross to suffer that shame and all the suffering, all for nothing. But we have to emphasize today that Jesus was not the victim of an angry divine father. Instead, the Bible portrays both the father and the son working together to accomplish salvation at the cross. Also, the cross did not surprise Jesus. When he came into the world, he knew what he was getting into. He knew what lay ahead of him. John 10, 18, Jesus said, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. And so God the Father God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were working in unison, in perfect unity to bring about the salvation that was accomplished on the cross. And so when Jesus, hanging there on the cross, cried out those words, it is finished, he was simply saying that the salvation that we had by his substitutionary death on the cross taking my place and your place in the place of the whole world to all who will receive him, believe in him, that he died for their sins, that he bore their sins on the cross, and that by believing in him, God will forgive all of our sins. 
That is the wonder of substitutionary salvation. And so point number three, very quickly, the method of substitution. Christ became one of us, a man. And can you imagine taking that out of the package of salvation? It means there would be no salvation. But God sent Jesus into the world to be born of Mary, to be born as a baby, a human baby, with a human nature from Mary, but a divine nature. He was the God-man. And because he was the God-man, he lived a perfect life. He was holy in all of his nature. He could go to the cross, die for us, bear our sins in his own body on the cross so that you and I might be saved. He was born by a physical birth. He experienced physical development just like all of us did. He had a physical nature. He had a physical lineage, a son of David. But Christ was the God-man, the man with a capital M. He had a supernatural birth. He lived a perfect life. He was assailed by temptation just like all of us, yet he did not sin. And finally, he assumed, he bore, he took upon himself our sin on the cross. On the cross, Christ endured the judgment of God for man. And I think a pretty good illustration of that is in the case of Barabbas, the thief, the murderer, the sinner. Turn your mind today to the cross. Upon that hill, three crosses stand ready to receive the three condemned to death criminals. On either of the two outer crosses, there's a criminal who has committed such serious crimes as to deserve to die. That center cross will receive the body of Jesus, a man who committed no crime nor any sin at all. And yet, He will hang on that cross as if he were personally guilty of the most heinous crimes. But that center cross was not prepared for Jesus. Those who planned the crucifixion did not know it would be Jesus who would hang there. The cross was prepared originally for a criminal named Jesus. Barabbas, who was a robber and guilty of sedition and murder. Pilate sought to release Jesus, knowing there was no cause for him to be condemned. He offered to release him or Barabbas, sure in his own mind that no one would want Barabbas released. 
To his surprise, the people asked for the release of the hardened criminal and the crucifixion of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus went to the cross, which was prepared for Barabbas. If the criminal Barabbas had walked past Calvary that day, he might have looked to that center cross and said, that was where I was condemned to suffer death. The man hanging there is in the place I deserve to be. He is taking my place. But Jesus didn't didn't die, just die as Barabbas substitute. He died on the cross as my substitute, as your substitute. God in Jesus Christ has perfected and made sure the way of salvation for sinners. Jesus Christ took our guilt and suffered the penalty in our place. The atonement was made. Salvation was completed. Praise God for him. God's salvation is ready for the taking because in the words of that great old hymn, when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And uh, even though we here in this auditorium may be few in number, but God's salvation is still available to any and to all who will just look to the cross and know that Jesus took my place. He was my substitute on that cross. And by believing him, by receiving him, that he died for me, that he bore my sins, God will forgive all of my sins. I will be born again. I will be a child of God. And I will live forever with him in heaven one day. For those who may be listening to God's word on the internet, I would invite you just where you are to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. He is your only hope. And I'll be here in the altar. And if wherever you are, you just pray that prayer. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm lost. But I also know that Jesus, the perfect Son of God, died for me on the cross. I believe in him. I receive him as my personal Savior. So Brother Dennis is going to come and lead us in a word of uh, uh, hymn of invitation. And I pray that God's Holy Spirit will move on your hearts. Let's stand together. We're going to pray first and then we'll ask God to bless in this time of invitation. Father, we thank you for this special day that we've had to worship and serve you. Pray that you'd bless in this invitation. Work in the hearts of everyone listening, that they might trust Jesus today as their Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother Dennis.